I would invite you to take your Bibles and return to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 19. I uh, didn't think about this till a little bit ago, but uh, I was going to ask you to, uh, to pray for me for this coming week, and then I realized that you might struggle with this prayer, okay? Because this week I, uh, I'm going to be teaching down at the school at the Center for Pioneer Church Planning, uh, and I get a whole week with these students, and, and I'll be teaching them how to teach the book of Genesis, so the focal point is how to teach Genesis. There'll be 30 students, and, and I get to teach uh, Tuesday through Friday, eight hours a day for those days. It's great. And Saturday, I'm going to have an opportunity to speak at the open house at the school and speak to pastors about what does it mean to, to be a sending church and things like that. And, and I was going to ask for prayer for, you know, just endurance and all that, but I'm going to be in South Texas. And, uh, you know... And, and you're going to be up here, and so I'm going to pray for you this next week. Uh, you don't, don't pray for me. Uh, just I'll pray for you because uh, it's hard for me to ask for that prayer as you're up here cold in this Arctic blast, and it's, I'm down where it's a little slightly warmer. So, so I, will, I will think of you often, and don't get mad as you think of me this week. Okay, Actually, I appreciate that. But we are here this morning in Luke 19, the passage that Philip read for us. And uh, before we get into it, I'd like to just open our time in prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, the privilege that we have of being together. Lord, we think of the group that's gone this weekend up to Honey Rock. And, and uh, boy, what a, what a privilege to see close to 70 people go up this weekend and be part of that and, and the opportunity to invest into the next generation and to, to, to give them such a concentrated time of, of fellowship, of Christ-centered community, of teaching, of worship. Lord, I pray that, that all these, these kids would be safe and grow. And, and Lord, as they travel back, we, we pray and we just ask for you to, to, to just watch over them and to bring them back safely. And uh, Lord, I'm, I'm grateful that we get to be here May this time in your word just change us and cause us to love you so much more. And may the songs that we sung this morning be true and evident in the way we live our life this week. And I just pray all this in, in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this week I was doing a, a, some, had an opportunity to spend a little bit of time looking into the, uh, to the sinking of the Titanic. Now, the reason why I was looking at this is I was thinking about something this week, actually, as I was studying this text. My mind kind of went off on this very weird little rabbit trail, and because uh, as I was studying this, I kept thinking of the Titanic. And here's the reason why. I was thinking about the fact that this captain of this ship was a veteran captain. In fact, this was his last voyage. He was going to retire after this final final trip. And, and this was a man of the seas. He, he'd known the seas. He knew how to navigate. He knew, knew, knew way more about sailing than I know. And, uh, and yet he did something that was very odd. When the warning comes to him that there's icebergs in the water, he kept going at full speed. Now, I don't know much about sailing, but I do know this. Because I lived in Alaska, and I was out on the boats 
around uh, ice fields, and we lived by a glacier. Sometimes we'd go out in the, in the boats and go look at the glacier, and there's all these ice fields out there. And when you get into an ice field where there's, where there's icebergs in the water, you slow down. You, you be very careful. You know that saying, the tip of the iceberg? The reason why that saying is there is that what's sticking out of the water is not necessarily the shape of what's underneath the water. So you might see something coming straight out like this, but underneath it could be wide. Not only that, they can flip just, just because they're, the way they melt and the way the sun's hitting the top and different components of it, and all of a sudden that iceberg can just can flip. So when, when you're around uh, an iceberg, and especially a big iceberg, you slow down like it's sailing 101. It's, it's like driving today with the snow on the ground, and you're not going... 70 miles an hour down a highway on a day like today, you're going to slow down. Common sense is slow down. So here you have this veteran sailor who's told, hey, icebergs in the water. Keeps the thing full throttle. It's going 23 knots fast. And he hits an iceberg. And I kept asking myself, why would a veteran sailor not slow down? Got thinking about this for a reason. That decisions are never made in a vacuum, right? There's a context behind every decision you make. And that context is all the information that is going into your head at any given moment. And you kind of gather up all that information and you, and you make your decisions based on that kind of information. Now this sailor, this captain, he had a lot of information coming at him that caused him to keep the thing at full throttle. What's interesting, little side note, after they hit the iceberg and they realized the ship's going down, they shot flares off in the air. And there was another ship far away but saw the flares. And those flares are, are sent off as a sign, and the sign is when you see flares go off on a ship, it means it's sinking. That was the sign in 1912. So flares are going off, and there's another ship that sees the flares, and the captain's told, hey, there's flares going off on the Titanic. And he rolls over and goes back to sleep. Doesn't. He had enough lifeboats to save all those people. Why did this guy go back to sleep and not send his ship over there, not send his lifeboats? Well, you see, decisions aren't made in a vacuum, are they? There's information. So this is stuff that's going through my head. And I'm like, okay, I got to find out why. What in, the, what in the world happened that would, would have made them make this decision? So let me give you the context behind all of these decisions. The decisions of the captain of the Titanic, decisions of the captain of the other ship. What was going on in their, in their minds? And what was the environment and what was the context of their decisions? Okay, so now here's the first deal. The captain of the Titanic, he's on his final voyage. He's got a goal. He wants to cross the Atlantic in six days. No one had ever crossed the Atlantic in six days. He wants to be the first one to do it. So he's got a little bit of pressure there. He's got a vessel that can make it across in six days. And, and there, there was a lot of momentum to get across in six days. That was kind of the information gap they were trying to close. Can we connect the continents? This is the beginning of thinking about global trade, global resources, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, things like that. If we can get this connection going, this will be good. And so this guy is going to end his, his, his uh, final voyage, kind of like Michael Jordan, 
you know, ending with winning a championship and stealing the ball and shooting the last shot to win the game, and you go out on top. He's going out on top. He's going he's gonna to make it across, and so he's got that pressure on him. Now, the shipbuilders, they themselves, they had pressure, and, and, the, and, the, and the company that was in charge of this, they wanted to get across in six days because they had a business goal in mind. They wanted to be the company that says, we can get you across in six days. And so, of course, they, want, they have this pressure to do this as well. Now, there was other pressure. When the shipbuilders were building this ship, they needed to get it done in a certain amount of time. There was a lot of eyes on this event. And so they ended up using inferior rivets in, in the ship. These, the metal, these rivets, when they, when they pulled up the, the wreckage, they discovered that the, the metal was not good metal on the rivets. Captain didn't know that which meant that that ship could not take a direct hit from an iceberg. He's under the impression it can. If he had been told that the rivets were not as good as they could be, he probably would have slowed down. Okay. Now, the cruise line that booked the tickets, they wanted a good-looking ship, so they took lifeboats off because they, lifeboats are bulky on the side. So they sold more tickets than they had lifeboats, but they thought, this thing can't sink. So let's make it look cool. This is a big deal. Lots of pictures. History's being made. Let's clean this thing up, make it look good. So they take lifeboats off the side of the ticket. The architect that was designing the ship, he had designed all these little compartments underneath there. So if there was a hole or, you know, if something had, had made a hole and it was flooding in one area, it would just be contained to that one area and all these little compartments. But in order to make it completely sound, he should have run those compartments up over halfway through the... Uh, you know, depth of the ship. He didn't want to impact the size of the first-class staterooms, so he didn't make the compartments deep enough. But he thought, you know, they're not going to hit any icebergs or anything like that, so we can, we can make it a little bit there because we want to charge a lot of money for these staterooms, and we want fancy staterooms and all that, that kind of thing. The other ship in the area knew that they were getting close to New York, and when they saw the flares going off, they thought everybody was just celebrating that they had just grabbed the flare guns and just was just shooting them in the air to kind of say, we made it. So he said, ah, you know, they made it in six days. Let them party. Just ignored that because he thought there's no way that ship can sink. It's impossible. It can't sink. And on board the Titanic was a representative of the shipping company that apparently pressed the captain to say, don't slow down. My job's on the line. we got to get here in six days. Okay, there's all the context. You're probably going, less than you spent a lot of time on the Titanic there. Why? Okay. Uh, here's the reason why. I wanted to show you that, that at that moment, you have this, this veteran sailor that in every component of his life, in every other circumstance, the moment he sees an iceberg, he pulls that throttle way back because he knows you don't go fast in an ice field. Rule number one, yet all these new circumstances come in and caused him to violate the very thing he knew was right. Now, hopefully in your brain you're seeing where I'm headed with this story. Hopefully you catch it. There are lots of things that we know are right. There are lots of things that the Bible teaches. There are lots of things that are straight forward in the scriptures, right? 
And yet, we allow other circumstances and other things to cause us to say, well, that doesn't really apply here. Right? You know what I mean? So, you have a situation. You know, relational conflict going on. You get a relational conflict. You know in the Scriptures, Paul made it so clear, man, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual war. And yet, somewhere inside we say, okay, that's true. But in this context, it really is this person's fault. You see, I'm going to violate everything I know about the Scripture over here because this data in my life is telling me that I don't need to apply the Bible. I don't need to take the context of the Bible. The Bible says, boy, you're going you're gonna to love, and it means you're going to lose things on this side of life. But we kind of say, yeah, but when love takes me to the point of losing things, I'm not going there because I don't really want to lose things. I love middle class. It's fun. I'm not willing to lose it all for the kingdom. You see, other factors come in, and we can read, that we can read something in the Bible and say, boy, Slow down, ice field. I know that. I'm a veteran. I'm aware of this. I've been in Sunday school. I've taught Sunday school. I've taught these lessons. I've stood in front of the youth group and told them, man, if you love Jesus, you've got to be willing to lose everything. But then, when I face that moment in my life, it's easy for me to become the, the captain of the Titanic and say, well, I'm going to violate all that for this reason over here. The reason why I'm saying this, where my, why my mind went to the Titanic, is Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and these people have been schooled in the law. They're in Jerusalem. They know the significance of Jerusalem. They know the significance of the temple. They know the Old Testament. They have the prophets. They have Isaiah. They have Malachi. They have Zechariah. They've got clear books that tell them exactly who the Messiah is. And yet other factors get in the way. And suddenly they push away the truth and they begin to allow these other factors to get in the way. What's the other factors? They were processing life on a much more eternal or temporal plane. On a much more temporal plane. They were much more concerned about Rome, their political status, their money, their economics. They were much more concerned about their power. They were much more concerned about their life right in the here and now. And what they were trying to do was maintain their life and improve their life in the here and now. And what they wanted was for Jesus to come in and improve their life in the here and now. They wanted Jesus to take care of Rome. They wanted Jesus to take care of their problems. They wanted Jesus to come in and feed them and, and, and make them happy and, and establish the comfort that they should have as the people of God. All of those factors start to weigh in on them, and they start thinking about those things. And then when they come to the Word of God and they come to the truth of who Jesus is, they come to the truth of what He's teaching and what He says, they say, no, I don't want that. You see, other factors have moved in, and even though Isaiah says this and Malachi says this and Zechariah says this, and even though it's really clear what it means to be a child of God, I'm going to allow the other factors of my lifestyle and my my, my politics and my love of, um, you know, nice middle-class lifestyle to get in the way and to start causing me to violate what is clear and true. And that's what this moment is about. Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem and he pronounces a judgment on people who should have known better. 
but who allowed other factors to come in to cause them to say, we don't want that kind of Jesus, we want this kind of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see. So, so we're going to look at this today. We're going to look at who Jesus is. Last week we began that journey. I said when Jesus is entering to Jerusalem, we learn about him as the king, what it means that he's the king. We saw last week that he was the king of peace and the king of glory. Today we're going to see two more things about Jesus. We're going to see that he's the king of judgment, but we're also going to see that he's the hope of the nations. Now, the reason why it's important we look at this is that Jesus is defining himself. Our problem is that we've allowed the factors of, of our lifestyle to get in the way of how we view Jesus. And as a result, we can sometimes violate that very truth by the way we live. And so what we want to do today is say, wait a minute, let's, let's look at who Jesus is and let's let this definition of Jesus push out any of the wrong factors that I've allowed to get in the way that I, the way that I interpret Jesus and obey Jesus and, and listen to Jesus. And my heart for us is that we would really engage this world as a true follower of Jesus, the real Jesus, not the middle-class Jesus that we want to follow in our flesh, but the real Jesus, the real Jesus who will push us and the real Jesus who will drive us at times to places that are uncomfortable, but the real Jesus that will lead us into a world that is beyond the middle-class world that, that our flesh loves. So let's look at this here. Let's look. He's at, at the first thing here, the king of judgment. The king of judgment. And, and, and one of the lessons we're going to learn about Jesus here is that we've got to listen to him because he's the king of judgment. Look at verses 41 42 with me. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So he's drawing near to the city, and notice, he weeps over it. He's crying over the city. I find it interesting, as he's making his way in, that, that, that his heart is filled with sorrow. Here's the reason why I find that interesting. You know, so oftentimes I, I think about, you know, you can compare yourself to Jesus in one sense. And I do that not in a way to say I need to measure up to Jesus, but to show me how much I need him. Okay, now picture this. If someone lies to you, just flat out lies to you, isn't it easy to get angry with them? Right? If someone misleads you, it's easy to get angry with them. If someone uh, takes advantage of you, Someone's being disingenuous, right? Typically, we kind of have one response to those kind of things. Anger, 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 anger. Now, I think about Jesus. When Jesus is, is talking to somebody, he knows their heart. We don't know someone's heart. We think we know people's hearts. But the reality is he knows their hearts. He knows their motives. He knows that these people who are yelling Hosanna don't really mean it. He knows that they don't understand who he is. He knows it. He's fully aware. And the response of Jesus wasn't to start yelling at the people because, hey, you're lying to me, you're being disingenuous, I'm done with you. He cries. He weeps. It breaks his heart. 
fact, the English doesn't do it well justice here, this passage, because the reality is, it just says he wept over it, but, but the reality is, is that he's like deep sorrow. You know, I, I think of, of uh, Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah when I think about that as a cross-reference. Just this thought of, of, of the sin that's out there actually breaks my heart rather than makes me arrogant and puffed up and those sinners out there, they're going to face the wrath of God. Rah! You know, that kind of thing that we get. What does Jesus do? Now, he's going to pronounce judgment. We know that. But this judgment is offered out of a heart of sorrow. His heart is broken over sin. You know, that, that's just, that is uh, challenging to me. When, when I, my heart doesn't oftentimes break over sin. I can get arrogant and put off by it and rather than crying and just praying, God, give me your heart. I want that kind of heart. Because these people are in rebellion. But he's weeping over it. And notice what he says to him. He says, man, would that even you had known this day and the things that make for peace. You guys are thinking that I am, I'm coming into Jerusalem to wipe out the Romans so that you'd have peace because you think your problem in the world is Rome. That's what you think. You think your problem in the world is that if they could get fixed, my life would be fine. That's what you think. You think peace will come if everything gets in order. If everybody would just do what you say, you would have peace. And Jesus is saying there is no peace that way. Would that you knew what would bring peace. If every sinner in your life stopped sinning, if every person who's a thorn in your flesh stopped being a thorn in your flesh, if I could walk out to the street, go out to downtown Sycamore, stand out there and, and say, listen, everybody comes around me, I'm going to snap my fingers, and I'm going to make everybody in your life do exactly what you think they should do. Do you think there would be peace? They could go through life, and man, their spouse does everything they want. Their kids are doing everything they want. That sounds peaceful, doesn't it? You walk in, your boss says, what would you like? I would like more money. Okay, here you go. I'd like to have more money with less worse. work. Okay, how, how much do you want to work? One hour a week? Great. How about we triple your salary, make you only work one hour a week? Do you think you would have peace? Do you think that if every sinner in your life stopped sinning around you, that you would have peace? The answer to that question is, yes, you do, right? Because I know I do in the flesh. Why do I know that? Because I'm oftentimes subtly fighting for that, right? I'm wanting Heather to see it my way. I'm wanting my kids to see it my way. I'm wanting people around me to see it my way. I'm fighting for that. And if you don't see it my way, then you're messing things up because I'm so wise, right? I've got it figured out. Just follow what I'm saying and it will be great. And Jesus is saying, would that you understood where peace really comes from. You really think that if I bring, wipe out Rome and establish the glory of Israel like you want, that there would be peace? That's not the things that make for peace. Paul said, Philippians, I'm content. I'm content when I'm in jail and being persecuted. 
And I'm content when I'm free. I'm content when I have a lot, and I'm content when I have nothing. Because you see, my contentment isn't based upon my external context. My contentment is based on the fact that I'm right with God. And therefore, the world has no grip on me. So if you want to be a jerk around me, that's fine. Because you see, my peace isn't tied to you. You want to be mean? Fine. My peace isn't tied to you. You see, would that you knew the things that meant for peace, made for peace. You think that peace comes from everything being in order. You think your life will be fine if people around you would get fixed. We fight for it. We scream for it. And Jesus is saying that's not where peace comes from. He says, you guys are in Jerusalem, man. You're by the temple. You see the worship that goes on every day. You see the sacrifices that are made. You hear the law spoken to you. The word of God is proclaimed. You get to be in the center of all the festivals and everything. You, even you should know this is what he's saying. But you don't. You don't know the things that make for peace. So there are two consequences that are going to come upon Israel. The first one is right there in the verse itself. He says, listen, here's what's going to happen. The things that, that, that now, the things that make from peace will be hidden from your eyes. They'll be hidden from your eyes. He, what he means is this. The things that make for peace is what I'm actually doing, is what he's saying, and now I'm going to prevent you from seeing it. You want your whole life to be in order. You want everybody doing what you want them to do. You need this fixed. You need that fixed. God, why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you making this person better? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? God, because you see, if I don't have all of this, I won't have peace. And God's saying, listen, that's not how I make peace. I make peace by making you content in me. And if you don't want to be content in me, then I'm going to prevent you from seeing it. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of hope from that statement because Luke is volume 1 and Acts is volume 2, right? And in Acts chapter 2, what happens? Peter stands up the day of Pentecost and he preaches to these very same people. He says, you guys crucified the Messiah. You crucified him. You literally yelled, crucify him. And you want to know what he did? He raised from the dead. That's what he did. God raised him from the dead. And he's the judge of the living and the dead. And several thousands of those people, God lifted the blinders off their eyes. And they were saved. But prior to this moment, there's a consequence. He turns them over to the hardness of their heart. But then there's a second consequence. Look at verses 43 and 44. The second consequence is found in, in 43 and 44. And he says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The thing that came in for peace to give them real peace, which is just contentment with God, and therefore you're not tied to your circumstances. That is not what they wanted. 
They wanted peace. They wanted Rome kicked out. And so what's he going to say? He says, listen, okay, you want peace with Rome? (laughs) I'll give you peace with Rome. They're going to dominate you. And in 70 AD, the emperor Titus came in and surrounded the city and destroyed thousands of those people. And you know what it did? It ended the tension between Rome and Israel because God allowed Rome to kick those people out. What they feared the most happened. And now that Jerusalem became under heavy dominant rule of the Romans and on and on, and and they were kicked out of there until 1948. I mean, that was a long time. And he says, listen, these consequences are coming, and here's the reason why. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not understand that I did not come in here to make everything orderly in this plane. I came in to make everything orderly in this plane so that this plane wouldn't have a grip on you. So that whether God blesses you in this plane or allows you to suffer, whether God fixes everyone around you or doesn't fix everyone around you, whether people get saved around you or not, you're not tied to it anymore. There's no greater peace than to be set free from the bonds of this world. He says, boy, would that you knew, but you didn't know. And I came in. And the very thing that you wanted, the exact opposite is going to happen. Rome's going to destroy you. And not only you, but your children. The consequences of this is deep. Now see, here's the point. We all can stand as the captain of the Titanic and we can allow certain factors to come in because we hear these words and what Jesus is telling us and what Luke has been telling us all along is that peace comes when you are secure with God. And then you're no longer tied to this world. That's where peace comes. Now the question is this. Will you listen to the voice? Will you be like that skipper of the Titanic with a shipbuilder in his, in, up there in the bridge saying, you got to make it, man. My job's on the line. you got to make it. You know, we got that same person in the bridge going, no, you don't understand. You can have peace with God, but it'll be much better if you also have peace here too. So fight for this one. Fight for it. And you can start saying, oh, throttle up. Let's go. And hit the iceberg. You see, we face that moment. The question is, do we believe that statement? Do we know the things that make for peace? Now, the reason why I say he's the king of judgment is because if you don't embrace the peace that he brings, the consequences are bad. It's judgment. Because you're not right with God. And you'll have... You think you got problems now. Eternally be horrible. And so this is why I say he's the king of judgment. Listen to him. He is telling you how to make things right. He's telling you how not to be held to this world. He's telling you how to be set free so that you can have peace. And it's only through saying, Jesus, man, I just want to be right with God. I want to be right with you. And, and God, I don't want to be held to this world anymore. God, free me from fighting for this world Let me kick those people out of the bridge here and I'm just going to listen to you. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. But there's more. We'll keep pressing on here. Not only the king of judgment, he's the hope of the nations. Why don't you look at verse 45 with me. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, 
it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So here's what he does. He enters into the city. He goes right to the temple. Now this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament passage, Malachi chapter 3. I just want to read to you the fulfillment of this so you can see the picture. It also shows you just how much blinded, how blinded these people were. Because he comes into Jerusalem. Malachi chapter 3 says this about the Messiah. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So he's, just, he's referring to the one who's going to come ahead of Jesus right here. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Okay, so the messenger comes first. Then the Lord comes, and what does he do? He suddenly comes to the temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So what's happening? Saying he's like a refiner's fire. We sing that song sometimes and we just, you know, refiner's fire. Sometimes we just think it's just like life stinks, but God uses it to make you better. And there, that's a true statement, not downing that. But in this context, the point of the refiner's fire is that he's actually going into the temple to go after the sons of Levi, which those are the priests and all those that work in the temple, and he's actually going to purify the temple. Okay, so Malachi says the Messiah is going to come. When he comes in, he's going to rush into, Jeru into Jerusalem. He's going to rush into the temple, and he's going to clean it up. He's going to refine it. So now the big question is, what did he refine? So let's go back to 45 and 46. Let's look at it again. Because there's lots of things wrong going on in the temple, but Jesus focuses on one thing. It says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. So obviously there's some kind of selling going on here. And I'll give you a little hint. This is not just a, a verse that tells you you should not have a bookstore in your church. Okay, that's not what this is about. Okay, it's much deeper than that. Got these guys selling in there, and notice, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Okay, so he's quoting scripture there. Now, so if we want to know what he's going after, we got to go back to the quote, right? Make sense? What's the quote? It's out of Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. God is speaking of the temple in Isaiah 56, and he's, and he's speaking what, what his heart is for the temple. And listen to what he says, Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, now listen, or God is saying, listen, my heart is that I created all of creation. Not just the Jews, I created everybody. And you see, out there among the people of the world are people who love me. I'm calling them. What I want to do is I want to bring them in 
And I want to give them a place to worship God. I want them to come and offer their praises and their prayers. And so when he built the temple, he built this large outer courtyard. It's large. It was huge. Big, huge courtyard. And you know what it was called? The court of the Gentiles. And it was large because God said, I'm calling people from every tribe and every tongue to come here and to worship Jehovah as God. And I want a large courtyard because I created humanity and I am saving boatloads of people. And I want them here, man. I want them here. Now, what did these guys do with the court of the Gentiles? They lost their heart for the nations. They didn't care. They didn't care that God's out there in the world saving people. What they cared about was themselves and their own worship and their own worship experience and their own life. And they said, listen, we're going to put our eyes on ourselves. We're going to create our own world. So you know what they did? They said, okay, you need to have uh, pure animals to, to, to sacrifice. We know that. The law says that. you got to have you know, lambs without spot or blemish and stuff. How many people can raise those kind of animals? Well, you can't raise those kind of animals. It's a lot of work. You don't have the money for it. So what we're going to do is we're going to have special farmers that will raise animals for the temple. And then, you know, you're going to come on in and you're going to offer your worship. So Karen, you're going to come on in. You're going to kill a dove. Well, you, don't have, you can't even afford a dove, right? So, so what's going to happen is you're going to come in and guess what? I'm going to sell you a dove, the perfect dove. Now here's the problem. The problem is... Uh, I don't accept Roman currency, and that's all you have. So what are you going to do? Well, you need temple currency. So I need you to go over here. Tony Favors got a, a booth over here, and you're going to come over and exchange your money uh, for temple currency. Exchange rate favors Tony. Sorry about that. But it goes to temple upgrades. Okay. So you're going to go over there. You're going to get your temple currency. Then you're going to come over here, and you're going to buy your, your dove from me. And they said, this is a great use of this courtyard. Right? We got this whole courtyard. We don't really care about the we don't really care about the uh, the Gentiles. We don't really care that God's out there saving these people and bringing them in. We don't really care that God's sent the Messiah to, to, to save the world. What we care about is our worship. And we got this big space. Why use it for those people out there? Well, we could use it for here, for us. Because you see, it's us that matters. And Jesus, what does he do? He walks in, and he cleans out the court of the Gentiles, quotes Isaiah 56, and says, do you understand what's supposed to be happening here? This is supposed to be a place of prayer. Not a place of prayer for you, but a place of prayer for the people I'm about ready to die for. Because God's calling people from every tribe and every nation. You see, here's what happens. When you lose sight of the things that make for peace, you lose sight of what God's doing in the world. And your eyes get on yourself. And it'd be easy for us to do that. It'd be easy for us to start saying, okay, I'm just focusing on me and my life and my order. And then, well, then that's going to naturally translate here. And what matters is just our church and what goes on here about us. And it's just about us and us and us. And that's all it is. And Jesus is saying, you've missed it. I came to die for the world. And I'm calling people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And when I built the temple, I, the largest space in the temple was for the Gentiles so that they could come and pray and worship and that you would be a light to the nations. You see, he's the hope of the nations, but they missed that. 
So he cleans out the money changers. He cleans it all out. Now, I think the people were happy about that because the exchange rate wasn't benefiting them. So I don't think they, they stood in the way of, of Jesus cleaning up the temple. In fact, verse 47, after he cleans it up, look at what happens. And he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the, the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his word. So he's cleaned out the temple. The people are are listening to him. I can't imagine how incredible that would be to hear Jesus teach the Bible, right? He wrote it, and now he's teaching it, and they're hanging on it. He's cleaned out the temple, and the religious leaders want to kill him. But they're both missing the point. Some are religiously missing the point. Some are rebelliously missing the point, but they're both missing the point. They could not see the things that make for peace. So what do we do with this? I was thinking about this, and, and several thoughts came to my mind as I was kind of trying to wrap it up and, and, and just thinking about my own life and what are the things in my life that, that I've allowed to get in the way. What are the areas in my life that, that I'm fighting for because I've actually made thinking that this would be the thing that would make for peace in my life? Is there any temporal thing in my life that I've looked at and I've said, you know, if this would just get in order, everything would be fine. And where am I attaching myself? And then I started thinking, if I take that even one step further, then, then how is that causing me to reinterpret God? To misunderstand who Jesus is. and To misunderstand who he really is. Because once I start reinterpreting the things that make for peace, I'm reinterpreting who Jesus is. And suddenly he doesn't mean as much to me. And suddenly, if he doesn't mean as much to me, what he's doing in the world isn't going to mean as much to me. And so then my heart isn't really breaking over sin. My heart isn't breaking over what God's doing to draw people to himself. Suddenly, my heart is just focused on me and what I think I need. And, and so, in thinking that through, I was thinking about Jesus, and I was thinking about a passage of Scripture in um, John chapter 13. And I'm just going to read this to you here. In, in John 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, right? He's coming to the upper room. And I just want to read to you out of John 13, just the first few verses of it. Because I was thinking, this, this, this might be a good prayer for us. John 13, 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then listen to this. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So they're having supper. Satan's already taken over Judas. And they're all together still. That's the key. They're all together. Judas is with them. Jesus knows that the devil has filled the heart of Judas. What happened? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And what did he do? He washed their feet. He washed Judas's feet. Think about that. How, could you do that? Well, I... 
There's people you struggle with, man. You can't even serve them now, let alone like wash their feet that way. To humble yourself. Take the role of the servant kneeling before someone who's filled with a demon who's about ready to betray you and wash his feet. How can Jesus do that? The text tells us how he did it. It says, Jesus, knowing where he had come from, knowing what he'd be given, and knowing where he's going, got on his knees. He knew where he came from. He's from God. He knew what he had, everything. He knew where he was going, back to God. Therefore, I'm not tied to Judas Iscariot. I'm not tied to this world. The things that make for peace is knowing where you've come from, you're from God. What you have, everything in Christ. Where you're going, back to the Father. That's the thing that makes for peace. Because then later, Jesus, after he washes their feet, he says to the disciples, do you know why I did that? Because I want you to do it. I did this as an example for you. But you need to know where you've come from. You're from God. You need to know what you have, everything in Christ. You need to know where you're going, back to God. All three of those statements pull you from this world. And so suddenly now, the Judas Iscariots, the problems, the Romans, the whatever's in your life, you can say, listen, I'm not trying to fix them anymore. I'm not trying to fix this anymore. I'm not trying to fix that anymore because I am done with thinking that that will bring me peace. Done with that. Peace comes from knowing where you've come from, from God, knowing what you have, everything in Christ, knowing where you're going back to God. So, that was your bonus sermon out of John. But I wanted to give that to you because I wanted you to think about that as a way to conclude this. What are the things that make for peace? The things that make for peace, knowing where you've come from, God, knowing what you have, everything in Christ, knowing where you're going back to God. And then saying, okay, God, rip the grip and the love of this world and, the, and the, the thought that this would bring peace. Rip it from my heart so that I will not be like the captain of the Titanic and blow this off and ignore this because there is no peace. And you know what waits at the end of that road? Judgment. That's the harsh reality. Would you bow your head with me? God, it's so easy for us to let the temporal world dictate the eternal world for us. It's easy for us to think that peace will come when everything gets in order in my life. It's easy to think that if everybody just do what needs to be done, if the money would come in, if the bills would get paid, if this would happen and that would happen, that, that suddenly peace would be there. Lord, You've made it abundantly clear. And those are not the things that make for peace. Those are the things that make for conflict. Those are the things that make us live for ourselves. Those are the things that make us the Lord of the universe. Those are the things that drive us away. Lord, may we see where we've come from. We've come from you. May we see what we have. We have everything in you. Therefore, it doesn't matter. May we see where we're going to an eternity with you. And then, Lord, may that motivate us to bow our knee and to wash the feet of the people before us. 
Lord, free us. Lord, I struggle with it. It's hard for me to see it. I sometimes rewrite your word or, or just not listen to it because I love this world at times. And so, God, just, just free me from that so that we could just love you more and that we'd have real peace. Lord, may we know the things that make for peace so that we might engage what you're doing as you're calling people from every tribe and nation into this world to love you. God, let that grip us. Let us weep over the loss. Let us weep over the people who don't know you. Let that be the passion of our life. Lord, let us not get angry at those around us because they're not doing what we want them to do. They're not meeting our agenda. Set us free from that and allow us to know what peace is in you. I pray this all in Christ's name for his glory and for his kingdom. Amen.